Hello everyone, it's November 1st, 2022. This week we got Mike Stewart dropping by to tell us about the latest in the virtual AGC project. Also, why was the Kuiper Mega Constellation booked to launch on a bunch of rockets that haven't even flown yet? How will Amazon make that delivery? Let's talk about it and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 383 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Mike. What? Yeah, so Dennis uh, changed his name, changed his voice, did not change his gender, uh, and is now Mike. Uh, so th- this is this is Mike Stewart. How's it going, man? It's been forever since I've like actually talked to you. Uh, it's going great. How are you doing? Pretty good. So uh, like, I guess we're just going to jump right into it, right? And unless there's you have any uh, any banter topics you want to bring to the intro? Oh man, uh, I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> Put you on the spot. So, so we we wanted to bring Mike on. Uh, first off, it's it's kind of a slow news week, so it's like a perfect time to slot him in. But Mike, um, you and the virtual AGC group uh, hit a big milestone. Yeah, we did. This week, we just put up the flown version of the Apollo 13 lunar module software, uh, which was the last one that we didn't have that flew to the moon. So. Uh, we have all of the LEM software now. That's so which cool. Is so very exciting. So, like, uh, give us a recap on what Virtual AGC is and like why you're trying to collect all this software. Yeah, uh, Virtual AGC is it's a project that what we're trying to do is is collect all of the um, all of the software from the early space program, uh, Gemini, Apollo, you know, and, and all the vehicles in those. Pro- Programs. So, you know, the, the Gemini capsule had a computer on it, but also Apollo had the Apollo guidance computer. It had the abort guidance computer in the LEM. Uh, it had the LVDC on the Saturn V. Um, and we think that that software, A, you know, it's very early software and is sort of foundational to a lot of what we have mm-hmm. today. Um, and, you know, it's hugely historically important. So we're, we're trying to do our best to collect it all and digitize it and make it runnable um so that people can uh you know interact with it today and and y'all are a group of volunteers like no one's getting paid for this uh, oh, I which wish. is <laughs> the right well yeah i was gonna say it's it's the best kind of of history like historian work but like you know maybe maybe getting paid to do archival work is better <laughs> but um <laughs> But like, how, how many people are, are working on the project? Like, I don't even know how big it is these days. Like, really actively working on it. It's it's really just me and Ron Berkey. Wow. Mm, okay. I'm kind of surprised that there is no official or, I don't know, like, you're not being funded by anyone. Like, this is, I mean, like you <laughs> yeah. said, this is important. And it's, I mean, like, I think it's a big deal. And the fact that it's just down to you guys to do it and no one else seems to care is kind of surprising to me. But I guess that's how important historical things are lost to history because that does happen a lot. Yeah, I think it's it's not necessarily that people don't care. It's that people are maybe concerned about the the legal areas of it. Like, you know, mm-hmm. if, if somebody affiliated with NASA has access to this software, can they just release it or is it against the rules? <laughs> Whereas yeah. us, you know, operating as just sort of independent parties, it's a lot easier to, you know, we're not beholden to those rules necessarily. And I guess you have like plausible deniability, like you didn't <laughs> steal anything, right? Sure, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's, I we, we talked to NASA in the past and they've said things like, oh, well, this was made for us by a contractor. Uh, you know, Draper Labs mm-hmm. wrote the software. We can't give it to you without their permission. And when we talk to Draper, they say, 
oh, but we made this for NASA. We can't give it to you without yeah. their permission. <laughs> yep. Been there, done that in a totally different sphere, but I, I know exactly how that conversation goes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so when like when was the first work started? Because like uh, virtual AGC, I guess, probably started after the archival work started, right? It was like the actual like virtual AGC application was a way to interact with this code. So you must have had code to to start with, right? Yeah. So uh, this is this is going way back before <laughs> I got involved with all this stuff. I want to say that Ron got started on the virtual AGC stuff in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. after watching the movie apollo 13 at that point in time there were two program listings that had been scanned uh and just were online and available um but nobody had really done anything with them they were the apollo 9 command module software and ironically the very first thing that ron ever worked on was an early release of the apollo 13 linear module software mm. Um, so, you know, it kind of has come around full circle now that we finally have the flown version. But um, anyways, those were just like very poor quality, very hard to read scans of the full listings. Uh, so Ron, after seeing the movie, thought, you know, the AGC played a really central role um, and wanted to try to, to run that software. So he started trying to type up the uh, the very poor scans and then and, and then run them. Um, right. So, that, I mean, that's like. I don't know, like 15, 20 years ago. I mean, if it's, mm -hmm. if it's 2022 and he's starting in the early 2000s and then like all what what are the different sources uh, like where have all of these different versions of the software shown up? I mean, mostly like in people's basements, right? Like individuals have copies. Yeah, the, the vast majority of what we have has come from private collectors. Uh, either people that have, you know, collected since since the program uh, at various points in time, or a lot of it, like a, a very, very large fraction of it comes from uh, people that worked on the program. Um, for the Lunar Module Code specifically, uh, we got in touch with Don Isles a few years ago. Uh, Don was the guy who wrote the landing software for the LEM. Uh, so, you know... He he had more program listings just sitting around than we mm. had acquired to that point total. So he more than doubled mm. the amount of AGC software that we had <laughs> uh, awesome. when he let us scan all of those. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, other than that, uh, there's been a couple that have come from museums. Uh, we got the Apollo 11, both the uh, command module and lunar model module code from the MIT Museum in Boston. The Apollo 4 and 6 software came from... Uh, it was another museum in Montana, I think. I forget their name offhand. So so can you tell me, just because I'm a little bit more ignorant about exactly how this works, like when you get that code, how do you get it? Like what do you, like what is it that you actually do at the museum? So we, we get the, – the listings are large format, right? They're like uh, 11 by 16-ish um, of fanfold paper. So it's all attached together. So usually we use a camera to take a picture of every page. Um, but they're they're six, seven inches thick of paper in uh, about 1700 pages. So we just get a picture of every page wow. and then spin up a team of volunteers to just sit there and type out the whole thing. Usually it's a it's a little bit less labor intensive than fully typing it out. That really only happened when Ron first started. 
um, nowadays, when we get a new program listing, we can look at, you know, which mission is the closest to this one. And then instead of typing the whole thing, we just sort of go through every page and look for any differences between the two. Which, you know, is still very labor intensive. <laughs> still, yeah, still very labor intensive, yeah. very tedious. <laughs> and so you, you just picked up the most recent or the, the final flown software. And and which mission was that from? Uh, final flown software for the lunar module um, for Apollo thirteen. We're still missing. A oh, lot for of thirteen, right, right, code. yeah, right, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so what's what's left? I'm assuming you're still looking for some like what's the what's the opposite of flight non-flight like preliminary code. There's a lot of ground-based software like the uh, system test software. Uh, we actually uh -huh. just put up on the website yesterday. A program called Sunrise 69, which mm -hmm. was the Block One system test software. Um, if you've ever seen the the video computer for Apollo, which is the black and white video where they talk about the design of the Apollo guidance computer and show off how they built it, that's the program they were running in that video. Um, so we finally have that. We finally have a second Block One program, but uh, we're missing different revisions of sunrise uh and also of the block 2 command module and lunar module soft uh system test software which were called sundial and aurora and then we're missing we've never found any copies of the factory test code for the agc which would be fascinating to Ooh. find um, yeah and so for t when you say test code do you mean test code that was running on the AGC or code that was used to test the AGC both oh okay, uh, okay. It, it was it was code running on the AGC maybe interacting with an external test rack to test itself. Oh, I see. Okay, right. So it's it's not like there's a, a second computer that's saying, hey, do this, do that. Here's this input. Here's that input. And checking the output, the test code is running on the on the AGC itself. Yeah, for, for the system test code, uh, for sure. Okay. The, I think the factory test code may have had a little bit more interaction, like m maybe software running on the external computer as well. But Without seeing it, it's hard to know for sure. Okay. Yeah, th this is such a cool project. Um, and like to give a little more a little more context, uh, I'll have a link in the show notes to a YouTube video uh, that Mike and I did um, getting the uh, assembler running. And like if, if just saying, you know, big old sheets of paper with code written on it doesn't really give you the flavor actually seeing how how the structure works is uh, is really entertaining for me i mean like i really enjoyed um walking through that and it very much convinced me that anybody who's like pushed to this repo n has a much better understanding on a at a fundamental level <laughs> of early uh early programming than i do but yeah this is really cool and really exciting and like congratulations Thank um you. i you you guys have done so much work well i guess we didn't talk about how we got this software <laughs> oh yeah absolutely yeah yeah so we are pretty sure that there aren't any or many more surviving paper listings of the software left of this particular build. Well, just in general that we haven't scanned. Oh, okay. Um, we don't think that there's many more out there, but um, hmm. for this particular build, this, this Apollo 13 software, we're, we're pretty darn sure there's not a paper copy and it's, it's development history was complicated. It was, it was made on a branch because they had already developed started developing the Apollo 14 software when they went back and made some changes. So it wasn't done on the main, 
uh, Luminary build, and that wasn't tracked in their version control system back in the day, uh, like mm. in persistent backups. So the way we got this is over the past year, I've been working on a core rope memory reader. Uh, it's it's designed basically to the engineering drawings for the Apollo guidance computer that we got out of the National Archives. Um, the mechanical mating dimensions are taken from the drawings. The circuitry is largely taken from the drawings. Um, but what it allows us to do is just plug in a rope module and click read, and five seconds later we have the binary dump out of the rope. So we have been talking to a lot of private collectors that have you know these rope modules in their collections, and and one of them for the Apollo 13 case, one of them happened to have the flight spare module for the module that they changed from the program listing that we have. Uh, it was only different in one out of the six modules, and he, he had the flight spare for that one. So I, I, last weekend, I flew down and plugged it into the rope reader and dumped it. And we spent the last week disassembling that code and have it back into source code format now. Uh, but I'm pretty sure up until last weekend... That flight spare module was probably the only surviving copy of that software on the planet. Wow. I mean, one one building fire and, and it's gone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so what what did you know going into that? I mean, I guess that meeting, like when you were getting on the airplane, you knew that you were likely, you know, the, you know assuming that all the ones and zeros um, came out in the, in the right order that you're going to get this software. Mm -hmm. Um so, like, was that just based on deduction from what the history of that hardware was? Like, because no. No, nobody had, had interacted with this rope core for decades, right? Yeah. Um, so, knowing about the existence of this module was actually a large motivator for building the rope reader in the first place. Oh, um, uh, okay. What the, so, the, it's not printed nicely on a rope module, what it has in it, but the part number does contain that information. Um, so I, I met the collector who has this a year ago and, you know, saw on the rope module that it said 2010802-171. Uh, and we've put together from all the engineering drawings, we've put together a big spreadsheet that maps rope module part number to what is inside. Mm. Um, so, you know, from that, I was able to identify, oh, oh, man, this is the Apollo 13 lunar module software that we don't have. <laughs> Wow. And and what did the, what did the collector know about the module? Uh he did not know what was in it. Okay. He just had it, it's actually really interesting. It it's in a box that came with the traveler that says which AGC they plugged it into and when they took it out when and when. Uh. But uh he has an Apollo guidance computer and it 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 came with that and that was pretty much all he knew. So like he didn't even know which mission it was set for yeah i mean that that computer has a really interesting set of ropes it had as its main program the command module system test rope which only occupies three out of the six rope slots but because you they found that you could damage an apollo guidance computer if you ran it with less than all six ropes there, there was something that could degrade in the rope driver circuits um you had to have them all occupied, even if you were only using the first three. And for that purpose, initially, they had designed these things called rope jumper modules, where they had the same mm. form factor as a rope module, but they just shorted together the circuits inside through small resistances uh, to sort of simulate the load of a rope. But in this case, apparently, they didn't have enough rope modules on hand, and so they were just using this, to us, incredibly precious Apollo 13 lem software module as a jumper <laughs> wow it, we just got so incredibly lucky from that <laughs> 
Yeah. I mean, could you could you imagine if you were trying to track this down, like rather than having it fall into your lap and go like, oh, that's what this is. Imagine if you were tracking it down from, you know, from the lab and, and they're like, okay, well, you know, this part number went here and that serial number went over there. And like, could you yeah. imagine like tracking it down and going, oh, wait, this was used as test hardware. And now who knows where it is? Yeah. Well, the, the, unfortunate reality is that most likely we would be able to track it up until the day they sold it off to be scrapped you know most of the stuff was just barely safe from the scrap heap yeah for real oh man i would love to talk about the the rope reader that you built um yeah this was no small feat i mean like you've been posting photos to our discord channel of uh of the PCB design and like, Oh, here come, you know, another PCB got printed and like, look how good this looks when it's populated. And, <laughs> um, and it's been really cool. So like, can you describe what you've built? Because what you had, the rope reader that you made is totally different than the technology that they were using, uh, back in the fifties and sixties. It's, it's not totally different. I would say it's, it's mechanically quite a bit different. Uh, <laughs> But circuit circuit wise, it's it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, so it's it's like a it's a little metal box that's about six inches by nine inches by two inches, uh, just enough to hold all the driver circuits and the rope module itself. So you know it's all it's all surface mount, which was a technology that they kind of had. You know the the Apollo guidance computer was built out of surface mount integrated circuits, but it wasn't really widespread. But electrically, the driver circuits, I I tried to modernize them, but between you know these being perfectly exactly designed for this purpose by the original engineers and also the silicon shortage <laughs> i just mm. ended up saying screw it and and copied their design almost directly so the 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 driver circuitry is all just a bunch of discrete transistors and inductors and capacitors and things but it's all driven by an fpga you know which is very modern <laughs> yeah um the the actual uh the actual reading of the memory the the sensing of the the data coming out is actually a little bit complicated um due to the way that rope modules work you have to push about two and a half amps through the rope module to get data to come out and the data that comes out while you're pushing that much current through a a zero just due to noise can be as high as 30 millivolts and a one can be as low as 45 millivolts. So you you have to have this really sensitive detection for a few millivolts while you're doing all this high current stuff. <laughs> but I, I actually, I'm using some chips that I found from the 1970s, some sense amplifier chips uh, that Texas Instruments made back in the 1970s for that. Um, I got them off of eBay and they all work great. <laughs> oh, that's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> Just like thinking about uh, about how to differentiate such such noisy signals. Uh, what I don't know if it made it into the final edit, but on a recent show, we read a quote from somebody who was talking about um, uh, space qualified processors, and they're like, "Yeah, you know, in that processor, uh, it's not really ones and zeros; it's more like." Uh, 0.8s and zeros um and like that's that's even worse like the the difference between those two well the the other fun thing with with the rope memory is that it's impossible to predict if a one is going to go up or down right it could be plus 0.4 but it could be minus 0.4 
or sorry, not 0. 0.4, 0.04. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So so your your zeros are actually twice as big as your ones then if you include above and below zero. Ideally, your zeros should should remain around zero, but yeah, potentially. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, fair enough. Um, and, and like working at two volts is like insane. Like I, I, ha- I can count the number of like two volt power supplies that are in my house. Like I I could name off exactly where they are Um, other than, you know, ones that are built into consumer electronics. Like I know there's one for each laptop um, (laughs) and those are, those are really powerful. I know that I've got a chunky two, uh, two amp uh, wall wart over here and one over there. And that's about it. You know, like, yeah, that's that's insane. The nice thing is that you only have to deliver that much current and short, one microsecond pulses to get the course to flip um and so they have a lot of uh power filters essentially with with tantalum capacitors on on in front of each of the drivers that sort of smooth out the current to be much lower from the source side um so they just sort of briefly discharge the capacitor into the remote module so yeah okay that 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 does make things a little easier then yeah and one of the one of the changes from my design from the original agc is i added a fuse to each one of those circuits such that if one of my driver gets well if one of my drivers gets stuck on instead of heating up the wires inside the rope module because they're like 38 gauge wires in there um instead of heating up those wires it just burns out my board and then i i fix the problem but you know i don't damage any hardware <laughs> you don't have soldered fuses right you've got something that you can swap out no they're soldered onto the board oh because <laughs> Yeah, little little surface mount fuses. They're, it took me a while to figure out the, how I was going to do that design because um, it, it feels weird to put a 250 milliamp fuse in a 450 milliamp circuit. <laughs> but it, it just works out such that the way the, the inductor capacitor filtering works, th- that much current never goes through the fuse unless you have it on for much longer sure. than it should be. Um, so hopefully I never have to replace one. <laughs> Especially not when you're out at a site like... <laughs> yeah That's yeah like... i think i think for major trips i haven't done it yet but i have i have one more of these boards that i haven't done bring up on i think i'm probably going to just bring a whole board as backup <laughs> so i can just slot it slot a different board into the into the rope reader colin in the chat asks if resettable fuses are an option and i th- i thought about it but the thing with rope modules is that they're all it's all current based. Nothing you apply to the rope module is based on voltage. Um, and so all of the driver circuits, the set and reset drivers are 450 milliamps plus or minus 5 milliamps. The inhibit drivers are 225 milliamps plus or minus 5 milliamps. And the, the, the natural places to put a resettable fuse either weren't going to cut down the current enough to make it not concerning for 38 gauge wire, or they were going to change the resistance and therefore change mm-hmm. the amount of current that was being delivered in the nominal case if i wasn't burning something out that's kind of crazy i didn't think about the fact that like our whole mode of thinking for computing and data storage has changed yeah yeah it's all voltage based nowadays <laughs> so were were you running what what's the the default is what like 40 volts or something like it's something really high the default for what for the well i mean i guess the agc itself the agc runs the memory stuff at 14 volts oh 14 okay i mean that's that's bad but that's not too bad like we do that in vehicles i guess um did you did you run it at 14 volts was that just the easiest way to get the circus to work yeah i managed to find a a 14 volt wall wart (laughs) that can (laughs) 
source <laughs> enough current. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, also from the chat, uh, Deathkin has a really good question. How did you validate the rope reader? Um, do you have reference modules where you know what the data is inside of them? Yeah, so uh, it's been it's been sort of mixed difficulty there. Um, for the block two version of the rope reader, we were very lucky in that that a collector let us uh, test it on one of his modules first, and we already knew what was in that one. That one was from the Apollo twelve lunar module, and we digitized the listing for that several years ago. So we we knew exactly what to expect there. Um, we can do some level of validation for rope modules that we don't know what they have yet like when i dumped the apollo 13 lem software just recently i instantly knew that it was totally good the the moment that i read it because there are built into these rope modules at least the later ones there's there's some level of health checking um so the data for the agc is 15 bits only but the rope modules are 16 bits and they use that extra bit to store the parity of every word um so it's it's calculated such that the number of ones in every memory location is odd so if we read a word from an address and get an even number of ones there's potentially a problem there the other thing that they do is they they add these things called bugger words to the end of a bank and a bugger word is calculated it, it's a checksumming scheme um so basically, the way that it's calculated is they they add up all the words in the bank and then calculate the bugger word such that if you add the bugger word to that sum, the sum becomes the number of the bank that you're in. So if you add up all of the words in bank seven, you should get seven. And we got we got from the National Archives, they, they use these buggers, these bugger words to identify rope modules because they were things that were unique they you know every time you change the word the bugger word changes um mm -hmm. so they, they use these sort of for identification for ropes um and we, we got from the national archives this incredible drawing that lists all of the bugger words for all of the programs um so i i knew what to expect out of the apollo 13 uh lem software from that so when I did the dump of the module and I saw that all the parity bits were good and also the bugger words were what that drawing specified you know, that's basically a guarantee of a good dump. And that that's interesting because I, I don't think that Deathkin was necessarily asking about validating uh, at that deep of a level, but it it doesn't matter. Like, it you know, if you if those checksum uh, practices work, unless there's a really weird issue where you have multiple failures that cancel each other out, yeah. like that's it's really cool that you, that's all you need to know. Like, you're yeah. that's good. It's very so, cool. I said that there was some some mixed levels of difficulty there, um, and and there definitely is, uh, because earlier, as you might expect, earlier designs have more problems. There was a a particular type of diode. Um, it was part, part, part number that will be burned into my brain forever from studying these drawings. One zero zero six seven five one. Those diodes were even recognized back during the Apollo program to be problematic and failure prone. And they got designed into all the block one computers and the prototypes for the block two computers before they realized this. Uh, and so eventually they, they completely banned those diodes from the program, but unfortunately they made it into a lot of hardware. And so early rope modules have those diodes, um, and those diodes, those diodes, um, have a tendency to drift or just completely fail open. 
and when that happens, we lose a bit from 512 words of the rope module due to the way that things are grouped together. That's that's weird. I don't understand that. It's it's really complicated. <laughs> <laughs> and that's fine. I'm I'm fine not understanding it, but like jeez. So we've we've gotten several rope modules where we've had multiple diodes dead, but so far we've gotten lucky and they've all been in what are called different strands, so they don't affect the same words. So we've been able to use the parity to correct it. Also, really early rope modules, like the one that we dumped from the Computer History Museum or the Block 1 system test rope I was talking about, those don't have the checksums yet. And so we don't we don't get the right answer necessarily. Like we we don't know that until we disassemble it and make sure it all makes consistent sense. We don't know that that all the words read correctly. And that that happened with the block one system test rope. Um, one of those modules had a broken core in it. And that manifested in that we just completely lost eight words of memory and had to go through, disassemble the sections around them and try to figure out what that missing word was in each case. Luckily, we have really good documentation. So I, I, I think we were able to do it. And, and so that that's what we put up. And, and you know, if, if you run it in the emulator, that's that's making use of those eight words that we we attempted to replace. Um, but I'm, I'm hoping for that one, we'll be able to find another copy of that module and, you know, read that and verify that what we thought was correct really was. Okay, so uh, to, to try and keep this timely, because we are in the news segment, um, you also uh, mentioned that you wanted to ask for some help from the public at large, right, Mike? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so now that I have these rope readers and I can put them in my backpack and fly to wherever rope modules are, I'm now on the hunt for any surviving rope modules, uh, wherever they may be. So if you if you know anything about where rope modules are, if you're a private collector who has one, I, we don't need to make your name public. Um, just get in contact with me. I'll fly to wherever you are and read a rope. It takes five seconds. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. Any, any information about these rope modules would be hugely appreciated. Yeah, like it, it is something... If you have a rope module or you know where one is, like uh, this is like an RPG that all of humanity is playing and you can help us. <laughs> you can help us uh, get farther in the RPG. You, you said it, it takes five seconds. How long does it actually take to read a rope module to do that dump? So that the actual like when I click the button, it takes five seconds. Um, really? The Yeah. Um, it, what what frequency are you reading? Like going from address to address? Oh man, I actually had to slow it down because of all of the paranoid circuit protections I put in. It was tripping itself uh. off initially. Um, oh. but I'm reading it probably like a tenth of the frequency of the real AGC. So uh, I don't know for five five. It's five seconds for. 6,000 words, so 1,000 words a second approximately. On that note, uh, Colin in the chat asks, uh, how is the code stored after reading? Does it go on to a USB? Does it get saved to a memory card? Um, and I think this is a great question because if we're talking about like somebody who may be interested in coming forward with uh, a rope module they want to contribute to this knowledge base, like what are you walking away with? Yeah, so it's it's a little 12 kilobyte file that that gets saved to my laptop um, when I read it. And then right afterwards, I 
uh, have been copying it onto two different flash drives and putting those in different <laughs> places on myself <laughs> to make sure that I don't lose it before I'm able to make it to the internet and upload them. <laughs> um, all of the raw dumps are being committed to our GitHub repository. Um, and then from there, uh, we're just sort of slowly working through the backlog, disassembling them. Um, but the ideal is, you know, that we, we get all of this stuff available to the public as soon as we can. So, Mike, we, we talked a little bit about the amount of uh, paper, uh, paper backups or paper storage that um, you guys have been running around collecting. Um, if you are now uh, able to, to dump straight from uh, a rope module. Um, how much more information do you think is out there uh, that still exists that is, you know, stored in a rope module somewhere that's not accessible any other way? That's actually a really hard question to answer. A large part of that is, you know, we don't know how much got scrapped, but also we don't know, we don't know if any of those command modules that are in the museum still have their computers in them or not. We think for the most part they don't. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Yeah, I would I would think that they don't. The thing is it's it's for the command module the computer was behind one of the panels in the lower equipment bay. So without removing that panel you can't see if it's there or not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um but we think for the most part we're pretty darn sure for Apollo 13 and Apollo 15 that their computers aren't in there anymore. Um but we we think that that might be the case for most of them. So who knows where all the flown computers went to or if they still exist. So my brain immediately goes to analogies for everything. And so um, th this almost feels like estimating how many NEOs, near-Earth objects, there are. Um, and like when we're counting asteroids, we can we can know for sure how many we've counted or know very well uh, how many we've counted, but we don't know what the, what the total is. Mm. Do you guys know, is this a case of you knew exactly how many bits of hardware there were to begin with? And it's just a question of whether or not they made it out of a dumpster or something, or is this a case of, you know, you don't know how many asteroids there are and it's even worse because somebody has been throwing away asteroids. <laughs> We have a, like a an order of magnitude, sort of, um, just based okay. off of the serial numbers for modules that we do know. Uh, they, they... Oh, you you know that the serial numbers are all sequential or close yeah. enough to sequential. Okay, so we know that they made you know hundreds of these things. We also know that a lot of them got destroyed, right? All the lunar modules <laughs> that flew, <Right. laughs> those are all gone for sure. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm sure that plenty got scrapped. Uh, so. I, it's really hard to to say how many still exist <laughs> still exist on the surface of the earth yeah in one piece not floating around the sun or <laughs> that's true I, I i guess it's it's not accurate to say that all of the lunar module once the flu got destroyed <laughs> yeah yeah destroyed is the wrong word but it are completely inaccessible either due yeah, yeah, to yeah. entropy or distance yeah exactly right luckily yeah, we have yeah, snoopy yeah. software already so we don't have to worry about trying to go fetch it <laughs> hey but you know what if i could go get you uh snoopy's computer you would not argue oh no um, no and yeah. and that's something that we haven't talked about is is that getting other rope modules because we have the checksums for from the national archives for other software is sometimes using memos that describe changes and those checksums we're able to piece together you know what right. the what the software 
was for a mission, even though we don't have a direct source for it. Um, if we're able to make the changes described and end up with the right checksums, it's hugely likely that we we you know got it right. And that's that's what we did for Snoopy. Is we had a listing for the the first release of that, and then we have memos that describe exactly how they changed it for flight, and we made those changes in it. The checksums match. So, I mean, if if we were to bring Snoopy back, I would still love to you know dump that module and see that we we did that reconstruction correctly. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> if somebody can do that kind of hardware recovery, what? order exactly which ferrite rings or ferrite beads those uh, those little tiny wires go through is not the most valuable part <laughs> of that hardware recovery but no <laughs> uh, but we could st- we can still dream though that's very cool yeah. well i mean thank you for all of the hard work that you've done like i i can't tell you how happy it makes me to know that this work is being done, has been done, uh, has yet to be done. Like it, it makes me so happy that people care enough to to do this. So I just, I, I just every time I see you pop up on Discord or uh, in one of uh, Mark's uh, YouTube videos, like I'm just like, oh, this is a good person. I like this person. <laughs> Thank you so much, <laughs> and uh, thanks for having me on the show to. You know, let me talk about this and and beg for information about modules. (laughs) Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, then let's do let's do one more translation maneuver. Let's move to a different topic. Uh, Project Kuiper. uh, They're looking for a ride. Uh, So um, this is Amazon's big uh, mega constellation of 1,600 satellites, um, you know, kind of, I guess, one of the competitors to Starlink sort of. And I I just want to talk about this because it's kind of interesting, at least to me. And Ben, you kind of had some thoughts about why. And I guess we can talk about it. Um, but they need to get their satellites into orbit, obviously, and they're having trouble with that because uh, the contracts that they have so far, um, I believe, for eighty-three launches. Uh, so yeah, that's a lot of launches. They have they have eighty-three launches that are coming up, and they're all spread out amongst three different launch vehicles that have never flown yet. And to me, that's odd. Um, but there is kind of a reason for that, and that's that these Kuiper satellites are actually kind of big. I don't know what the size difference is between them and something like a Starlink, but basically, um, and of course, they're going to be delivering them in batches, I assume. Yeah, do you know how large those batches are? I guess if you just said assume, you don't. Yeah, yeah, I don't know what they are, but uh, but obviously that would be how you're going to do it. And so I suppose in the in the interest of just reducing the number of launches, which would also you know reduce the cost, um, they want to launch as many as they can in really or or at least ideally you want a heavy lift launch vehicle, which of course is true also for a constellation like Starlink. And that is part of the reason why you, uh, they're working on Starship or that's like one of the jobs that Starship will take up. And we did talk about Starlink 2 and how much bigger those are and that I suppose Starlink 2 would be facing the same issue. And that's kind of like, okay, you can launch maybe just a few of them, which will take forever, or you can launch a whole lot. I don't know how many, but you can launch say like 60 or 70 of them or, or something like that, but you're going to need a much larger launch vehicle. Um, and for that, you need to have a launch vehicle that just doesn't quite yet exist or hasn't flown yet. Um, so pretty much what we have here is a situation where they need a heavy lift launch vehicle. They don't have one. And the launch vehicles that they do have so far or that they are contracted to launch with um, are the Vulcan, which is with ULA, Blue Origins, New Glenn, and uh, the Ariane 6 with Ariana Spas. And so all three of those have never actually flown. Haven't even done test flights for any of them. Which, I mean, you said that they're all more or less on track. I ish. I mean, I don't. I don't think that they're notably delayed. 
Um, but it depends on when these launch procurements took place. Mm-hmm. But by the way, real quick, I, I just did the math. The whole um, satellite constellation uh, is going to be somewhere in the range of 3,200 satellites. Um, mm-hmm. And okay. they have procured um, 83 launches. Some of them are optional, but like, I'm going to assume that we're just doing uh, – Two three six three over eighty three, which comes out to thirty nine. Uh, so potentially we're looking at like thirty nine forty uh, satellites per per batch, just to give kind okay. of a, uh, an anchor figure. Yeah, and that's interesting because if these are on you know something like a new Glenn or you know like an Ariane six, and that just goes to show how much larger they are. Um, I don't know how much more powerful an Ariane six is than a Falcon nine, let's say, or for that matter, a new Glenn. But I believe bigger right or a heavier lift capacity i think yeah let me see i'll look it up okay ariane 6 actually has a lower capacity to leo uh 47,000 pounds versus 50,000 pounds for falcon 9 and then vulcan is 27 oh oh sorry 60,000 so yeah so uh vulcan that'd be vulcan centaur heavy is 60,000 so yeah it's it's in the same it's in the same class of of lift, which is kind of kind of what I f- felt in the back of my head. I wasn't sure. Who knows what New Glenn is actually going to do? Um, but for Vulcan and Arian Six, yeah, like these satellites would would be a little bit a little bit more massive if all these averages and everything are are reasonably accurate. So the problem basically is that they need to get these 1,600 satellites into operational orbit by July of 2026 uh, because that's uh, the FCC deadline. So uh, they have an, until then to get them going. Uh, if not, I don't know what happens. You have to renegotiate uh, what like the spectrum, right? Because that's what this is being held for or that's what's at stake here. Um, is that they've set that aside uh, for them, but they need to have it, you know, like actually in use by that time period. So they have until July of 2026. Uh, so basically, in order to maybe uh, get ahead a little bit uh, or to hedge their bets, they have procured nine launches on uh, in Atlas V. So that's something. And what's interesting is that the senior vice president of devices and services, Dave Limp, he said that they are confident that they will reach the deadline and uh, that they might have to use something like a Falcon 9, um, which of course is kind of seen as the competition, but they might do that. Although it's not ideal uh, because a Falcon 9 apparently does not have the lift capacity of whatever they were going to use before, which would be these these other three vehicles. But like you just said, there's, there's not that much of a difference there in uh, in terms of lift capacity. So I'm not sure what's going on. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's just that they didn't want to fly on a Falcon 9 and that's the actual reason. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, you kind of get a little bit of side eye going on there. But yeah, so uh, next up, we're going to have uh, president of Kuiper Systems, uh, Rajiv Badyal, uh, on to beg... Uh, for anybody that has a heavy <laughs> launcher that they <laughs> want to lend them. Yeah, so they, well, they might try to launch aboard a Falcon Heavy. I mean, at this point, they're probably willing to do anything. Might not be a good look or whatever, but it, that doesn't matter. They need to get the – they have to get this Constellation operational. But then uh, that same Vice President Dave Limp had also said that the heavy lift launch market is pretty constrained at the moment, which I guess it is, right? Because what is there? There's – Falcon Heavy, and I can't remember what classifies as heavy lift. I mean, Falcon Heavy, Delta Four Heavy, right? Or is that flying anymore? I can't remember. Or the Delta, I can't remember. But there's one one of those being retired. retired. Yeah, the names are so so similar that I have to like. Yeah. (laughs) 
certain thing. I can't remember the name, but you know what I'm talking about. Uh, that's being retired. So I don't know what else there is as far as heavy lift vehicles that are actually flying right now. And obviously anything from Russia, that's probably a no-go. So right. it seems that the real hedge here was that they were hedging on the fact that there would be heavy lift launch vehicles, you know, like actually working by the time they needed to have these put in orbit, which is 2026. That seems like mm. a pretty big bet to me. Yeah, it would really suck to to go through all of the FCC rigmarole and to, then to miss the deadline. They just don't have a ride. So. Yeah. so let's do three short and sweets. Ben, what is the first? All right. NASA launch slips. So Artemis 1 is currently in its final closeout, preparing for a rollout on the 4th of November and is targeting launch opportunities November 14th, 16th, and 19th. Uh, the prior FTS certification waivers are no longer valid, uh, but the current certification does cover all three of these opportunities. There's a backup opportunity over the Thanksgiving weekend, the U.S. Thanksgiving weekend, um, but it would require new FTS waivers. A different NASA project, Psyche, um, it had been scheduled to launch last week, um, but over this last summer, it was delayed indefinitely. Well, now it has been rescheduled, and its launch is now set for October 2023, which should provide ample time to test the GNC software that caused the original delay and threaten cancellation of the mission. NASA says that they will release the Psyche Continuation Termination Review Assessment once it is finalized. And then next up, Polaris Dawn slips again. Polaris Dawn's launch date has slipped to March of next year and may possibly be pushed further back. The private mission was originally scheduled to lift off late this year, but was moved to March of 2023 due to concerns over hardware and software readiness, crew training, and launch date availability. However, this new launch date may also slip as SpaceX and NASA move into a busy period over the next few months. Crew 6 is scheduled to launch in February, and there are several Falcon Heavy launches for the U.S. Space Force slated for early 2023. And finally, Centaur causes a slip. The launch of Polar Orbiting Weather Satellite JPSS-2 has been delayed to no earlier than November 9th due to an issue with its Atlas V launch vehicle, specifically the Centaur upper stage. The launch was to occur on November 1st, but engineers found that a battery needed to be replaced in the upper stage. This will delay the launch by more than a week. In addition to JPSS-2, this Atlas V launch will also carry into orbit the lofted inflatable decelerator, which will deorbit for splashdown and recovery east of Hawaii. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. And we have some actual corrections uh, from Leon Running Man. So that's cool. We haven't had any real corrections in a while. And this is uh, two of them. So two for the price of one or one listener. <laughs> Makes you feel jittery, right? Like, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and, this, and, and this is for two separate episodes, it looks like. So yeah. going back a couple episodes, actually, like three or four. I, I think that's a testament to how good the chat is. Like we get mm -hmm. so much feedback and like we can fix things before they happen. Okay. So Leon uh, started with episode 379. Um, we were talking about uh, the Firefly launch. 
And he actually quoted us. I like this. Um, you talked about the successful launch and then said, quote, which led to award of the Victus Knox mission for Space Force. Um, and then the correction is actually the contract for Victus Knox was awarded on the 29th of September, two days before the launch. So got our, our causality arrow <laughs> wrong there, or I guess uh, applied causality when, uh, when it didn't need to. I guess I said that they you know, had a qualified success, but not really a success. And yeah. they got the award anyway, but really it was yeah. awarded beforehand. So, okay. yeah, which is a really, it's a good catch. Yeah. Okay. So then the, the next up would be uh, episode 380. This was kind of uh, a bunch of news items all clustered together. We called it Test Fest 3. Um, and we were talking about Aerojet Rocketdyne's uh, new solid rocket engine, uh, ESR-19. And so uh, we had said that the original SR-19 is the second stage of Minuteman 2 and Minuteman 3. Um, and similarly, uh, the original SR-73 is the third stage of Minuteman 3, replacing the M-57 third stage that was used on Minuteman 2. Uh, Leon says uh, both SR-19 and SR-73 are 40-year-old designs but are popular for other uses uh, as nice quote-unquote niche motors performance-wise. Both are still recycled for use in suborbital test vehicles, but as the designs age, it gets more difficult slash expensive to sustain and convert them for suborbital use. Um, a lot of new tech has matured as these have uh, aged themselves out. So the new uh, ESR XX versions are, are hoping to find a market replacing the current uses of those uh, vintage designs. Um, and then um, Leon was kind enough to include a link. This goes to uh, Defense Industry Daily. Uh, that link will be in the show notes. So it's, an, it's a nice little contextualization, I think, mm -hmm. that, that uh, it would have been nice to have that context uh, in the show to begin with. So it's good to, good to be able to include it now. Okay, so moving right along, um, Andrew Z wrote in via email, um, and he had, a, he had kind of a conversation topic that I think is kind of interesting. I think I know what the consensus is going to be uh, from Discord, but if you haven't been uh, to our Discord uh, and you wanted an excuse to join, here's a discussion topic that we can uh, we can bring up over the week and kind of throw back and forth. What is the best way forward, a more advanced EMU or something like Genesis Engineering single-person spacecraft that they previewed uh, with the Orbital Reef reveal? So when we're on the surface of a planet, we need something we, we need a spacesuit to be able to walk around in, right? We got to have legs. But, mm -hmm. you know, as we're getting ready to drop uh, EMU, what do we want to do when we're in orbit? Do we need a spacesuit or can we use something that's more like a pod, um, whether or not it has gloves on it? Like, is that, you know, small spacecraft going to be better than a spacesuit? I think it's a, it's a really interesting thing that I think there are going to be a couple of different uh, viewpoints that might not agree with each other, but I, I would love to hear what, what Discord has to say over the next week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good question because I haven't thought of it much myself, but why in the first place? Well, I guess just for mobility's sake, although you don't use your legs a lot on EVAs, um, but you do when you're trying to get like it, it might just be easier to squeeze in and out of an airlock or something. I don't know. But even then, not really. I think the key is that you don't. I mean, one of the keys is that you don't need an airlock. You need a docking port. 
you can have the thing sit outside your vehicle. And so it can be really bulky because it doesn't have to go through. Anything that's that you can get into by way of a docking port, it seems like it's going to be pretty bulky. So I don't know if that's going to actually work as, as far as doing things like, you know, stuff outside, say a space station, just because it is sometimes kind of a tight fit, you know, and you have to move around in weird ways. I don't know. It seems like that might not be ideal. Like it might just be too big, but maybe not. I mean, if you have the right kind yeah. of... It, right. It doesn't, you know, like, it doesn't have to be big. I mean, if you had something that basically looked like an EMU, but instead of the hard upper torso stopping at the bottom of your rib cage if it you know was like a sleeping bag that would be fine you know you could you could have a, a fairly rigid you don't really use your legs <laughs> you know yeah you you put your your feet in foot restraints and that that's about it that's what they're good for so but i just meant like if it's docked instead of just you know like inside of a space station let's say yeah. or, or, or a or a spacecraft then that docking mechanism is going to be a full-on docking mechanism so yep. you have to take that with you yep. and you don't want to damage it <laughs> or, you're, or you're not coming back in all right so moving on to this week in space flight history uh we have four winners um we have laura forchick which is really cool had her on the show before and she had a correct guess but didn't get the bonus points unfortunately um but three other people did um and they are deathkin hydrek and the greek so congratulations uh the and the clue was making a new home then pulling dennis away from it and that's a really weird clue to me um i assume we were talking about dennis who's not here but i guess ben you can tell me if that is a correct assumption yeah. and what the event was <laughs> yeah well first off uh I, I feel really bad um, differentiating between uh, these four correct guesses, especially mm -hmm. because um, the person who didn't get bonus points is the only person I know to be a woman <laughs> in this group of four. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it do doesn't feel super comfortable to me. But I had uh, like, right, uh, white male, I'm just going to power through it. I, I had a criteria. I had two parts to the clue and I wanted both of them answered. Um, and my guess is that, um, is that Laura totally knows both halves and just didn't write them in. Um, and, uh, yeah, sorry. So, uh, this week in spaceflight history is the 2nd of November, 2000. It's so weird. I, 2000 now feels, uh, science fictiony to me, uh, cause it's no longer, a year that's uh, that that I commonly reference. Okay, so this week in spaceflight history is the second of November two thousand. It was the docking of Expedition One, beginning our continuous human presence in space, which has continued to this day and doesn't look to be threatened in the future. Which is really cool. In our, we have a big document with all of our um, Tewisif, uh history and also. Uh, uh, events that we've saved for the future. And in that document, this had a note next to it that said it was mentioned by Thunder Screech during episode 283. So I don't remember the context, but, uh, but thank you. That's, that's exactly three or exactly 100 episodes ago, which is kind of fun. So, right. Uh, Expedition one, it began when Soyuz TM 31 docked with the space station on board were, uh, Bill Shepard, who took command of Expedition one, Yuri Gudzenko and Sergei K. Krikalev. Soyuz, uh, 
TM31 launched uh, from Baikonur, I guess, obviously, on October 31st on a Soyuz U. Uh, and yeah, we haven't had a Soyuz U launch uh, for over five years now. The first Soyuz U uh, launched in 1974 uh, for the Apollo Soyuz uh, test project, ISTP, and it was discontinued uh, in 2015. So they, they launched, they get up to ISS, and there's, there's nobody at ISS. This was the last time that anybody approached ISS without other people there to greet them. I think that's really cool. Right before they arrived, uh, uh, the progress that had been there before, progress M, uh, M13, M1-3, uh, departed. Um, it was occupying the Zvezda aft uh, docking port, which then um, TM31 docked to. Um, at this time, the ISS was very, very small, and I thought it would be nice to list every single module <laughs> that was there on orbit because it's such a short list. Most of the time, you can't do this. There are too many modules to name. But Zarya, th this is an order of their uh, launch date, like their uh, assembly progress. Zarya, Unity, PMA 1 and 2. Oh, actually, that can't be in order because Unity and PMA 1... Yeah, I think Unity and PMA1 came up together. So Zarya, Unity, Unity and PMA1, PMA2, Zvezda, the Z1 truss segment, and PMA3. And that's it. Um, only one of those things is not pressurized, uh, the, the Z1 truss. And the Z1 truss segment actually has a little bit of a pressurized uh, section in it. Um, that That's all that ISS was, just a tiny little... Uh, spec in orbit, basically. Um, so once they got there, they had uh, a bunch of work to do. Um, first off, I think this is really interesting. If you go and read, because I was, I was reading uh, news articles uh, looking at what the, the first tasks were for Expedition 1. Not the first people uh, to inhabit ISS, um, but the, the first people to get an expedition number. And a lot of news articles from the time referred to ISS as space station alpha. And I'm like, what, what in the heck is this? It's not a uh, space station freedom, right? That's a totally different vehicle. This is actually ISS. Turns out that Shepard um, wanted to change the call sign. He didn't like uh, the idea of saying the international space station over the radio or ISS. So he got permission to use the call sign alpha, uh, for all of expedition one. The source I have for this also noted that the Energia president, uh, Yuri Semenov, uh, was very disapproving of calling it alpha. He said that it should either be beta or mere two. <laughs> if that's, if, hmm. if you wanted to call sign other than ISS. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know what? I don't disagree. I genuinely, I don't disagree. Um, so the team arrived, uh, and they had a bunch of work set out for them. Uh, they had to activate some life support equipment that had been shut down since the last mission. Um, notably some CO2 scrubbers, which I think might have been, uh, on board, but not installed. I'm not a hundred percent sure. They also, uh, did a bunch of unpacking from prior supply missions. Uh, they, wound up having a lot of issues at the beginning of the expedition. Um, I think it was uh, Shepard who said something about uh, how tough it was to pack 20 hours of work into an 18-hour workday or 
30 hours of work into an 18 hour workday. I mean, just, um, it was really slow. Um, and they had kind of stumbling blocks the entire way. One notable anecdote I found was that they needed to install or at least activate um, some food warming plates um, that are still in the Russian segment today, I believe. But it, they were scheduled to take 30 minutes, basically plug them in, turn them on and make sure that they get warm. Uh, but in reality, it took a day and a half to get these things working. It sounds like uh, ISS had some power supply issues early on uh, because they also, uh, I saw notes of, of uh, tool chargers taking longer to get connected to power than expected. And this is like a power supply issue, but they also had a power availability issue before the P6 truss arrived, which brought the first uh, SAWs, uh, solar array wing. Um, they were running on the small solar arrays on the Russian segment, and they literally didn't have enough power to power all three of these modules, Zarya, Zvezda, and Unity. And so Unity was left cold. It had been delivered um, and checked out, but they left the door closed and and just didn't run any power to it. They also uh, got the very beginning of their computer network set up. So they took a bunch of laptops, installed them on fixtures all across the two modules, uh, I'm assuming, and plugged them into a bunch of Cat5 cabling and set up a laptop network. And then one of the other big jobs that they had to do was they had a progress that arrived uh, during their stay. Um, it was progress M14, and it was supposed to do an automated docking, but the automated docking sequence failed. And so they had to uh, pilot it manually. That's, that's not the biggest deal, right? Like that, that happens on occasion. However, this was close enough to mirror and some of the manual progress docking procedures uh, that went horribly <laughs> awry. I mean, I guess not horribly because we never had loss of life, but it was close enough that they were a little nervous having the, the crew go ahead and do this. So that's the first part of the clue, um, making a new home. We now have a new home in space. Pulling Dennis away from that new home happened um, on the 6th of May, 2001. This is when uh, Soyuz TM-31 left the space station. Remember that Soyuz is often referred to as a lifeboat. If something goes wrong, you you want to have enough uh, lifeboat designated vehicles that everybody can jump on them and get the heck out. Shuttle was not really a lifeboat. Once I think once or twice it was relied on as a lifeboat, for, but for the most part, they wanted to have enough uh, Soyuzes, Soyuz I, uh, sitting around ready to go. Um, and so, um, so TM 31, uh, actually outlasted the crew, right? I mean, uh, they, they went home on a different, uh, Soyuz, um, TM 31 returned the crew that had flown up on TM 32. And that crew was Talgat Musabayev, Yuri Baturin and Dennis Tito. Uh, who had paid mm. for a ticket uh, through Space Adventures? I figured he came into this. That's 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 the dentist that I was thinking of. <laughs> yes, but I, I didn't. I didn't want to say. I didn't want to give it away. But yeah. And so, um, uh, Laura's guess uh, said uh, uh, talked more about Dennis Tito's contract. Um, he had originally uh, bought a ticket to go to Mir. 
um, with Mirkorp, um, and then they basically pulled the rug out from under him by deorbiting Mir, but he uh, he was able to make it uh, to ISS, which which is really cool. Like um, I, I like the kind of the the journey <laughs> that Laura uh, wanted to focus on in her guess, and yeah, I I would love to go talk about Dennis uh, more in the future. Um, I think that would be a, a good idea, but I, I wanted to focus more on expedition one. So I talked about some of the major tasks that they did, but I also wanted to talk about the visiting vehicles while they were there. In addition to that progress, they saw three different shuttle missions. Um, there was STS, uh, 97, um, which brought a total of 17 tons of equipment with it. Um, amongst that equipment was the P6 truss segment. So, um, once STS 97 got there, uh, they were on their way to to having the the full power uh, the, uh, of a fully operational uh, what is it the the Star Wars reference fully uh, operational oh. battle station or something like that yeah the Death Star uh, so w- once they got the the P six trust segment they were well on their way well they were on the the beginning path to getting the full power availability of ISS which is um, quite notable. Um, then there was STS-98, uh, which brought the Destiny Lab up. And then uh, the third uh, shuttle was STS-102. And that was mostly a resupply mission. Um, they brought up uh, MPLM Leonardo, the multi-purpose logistics module. Um, I, I really love the MPLMs because they look like any other... Uh, segment of the U.S. side or any other module from the U.S. segment and you just plug them in and people can go in and pull things out and then you unplug them and put them back in the shuttle and fly home with them. I think they're really cool. Um, but yeah, Leonardo was the first one to go up and Leonardo is the last one to come down because it's still up there, right? And then uh, STS-102 also featured the longest EVA in space shuttle history. Um it was uh, EVA one, uh, and it lasted for. It, it was EVA one relative to STS one hundred two. Um, it was not EVA one relative to Expedition one. Um, it lasted eight hours and fifty six minutes. Is that a record? Yeah, no, it's up there. Yes. Uh huh. That it is the it is the longest. So that was um, Susan Helms and James S Voss. Um, and like, I, I looked up the, the, e, the EVA and like, they weren't doing that much. It, you kind of would have expected, um, you know, crisis after crisis. Uh, but really that, that wasn't the case. They prepared PMA three, um, to move from unity nadir to unity port, uh, to make room for Leonardo. They, uh, moved, uh, a lab cradle assembly from the space shuttle cargo bay to the destiny module, like just to the side of it. They installed a cable tray for Canada arm two, which would be coming up, uh, relatively soon. And then they hung out in the airlock longer than usual. Um, so that they could assist if need be while they were relocating PMA three. So, right. They start out, they, pull some wires off of PMA three. They do the, the other stuff. They go back into the airlock and then, um, shuttles arm 
is able to move PMA3. I wasn't able to figure out exactly how long they spent in the airlock. I'm assuming that was, you know, everything from like seven hours up was just hanging out in an airlock waiting, uh, ready if they needed to help. But yeah, lo- longest EVA ever, kind of kind of a short list of duties uh, for that for that uh for that superlative i guess it all just took a long time i mean like you know each yeah. each one of those few things is just very time consuming yeah which wouldn't surprise especially me. pulling things out of shuttle and putting it on destiny like mm-hmm. yeah yeah stuff know, like that is yeah that's a lot of waiting around while in our moves yep okay uh that is this week in spaceflight history Awesome. All right. Well, so so not in reference to Dennis, just as I suspected. <laughs> it's in reference to Dennis. You're just thinking of the yeah, wrong well, Dennis. Just, yeah, just the wrong one. Uh, so next week is going to be the 8th to the 14th of November. David, do you have a clue for us? Yes. Uh, so next week is in 2013, like Icarus, but in reverse. Yeah. So wax synthesis. We're talking about dead bodies. Oh, no, that's the ponification. Although I think I'm not sure. Doesn't matter. Pose. Okay. (laughs) Doesn't matter. (laughs) If you think you know what this clue is in reference to, please uh, send us your guess. Use uh, Twitter. That's the best way. And just tweet. Use the hashtag ThisWeekSF. And good luck, everybody. Good luck. So moving right along then to upcoming spaceflight events. Got three launches and a rendezvous for for one of said launches. <laughs> ben, what's the first launch? <laughs> really trying to keep... <laughs> not, trying to make that not let information sentence. bleed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. First up is Hotbird 13G. Um, this is a communication satellite. Um that it's an it's an Airbus communication satellite. It's going to be covering Europe, the Middle East, and North Africa uh, for uh, UTELSAT. Um, it will be flying on a Falcon 9 Block 5 on November 2nd at 0325 hours UTC. Uh, well, that would be the th- the 3rd of November on, at 0325 hours UTC. If you are in the Americas, that's going to be 1125 p.m., Eastern time on the second. Um, and that is flying out of Slick 40. All right. And then after that, on November 6th, we have the launch of a Tianzhou 5. And this is the fourth cargo delivery mission to the Chinese Large Modular Space Station. Uh, so this is going to be lifting off on a long March 7th from the Wenchang Satellite Launch Center. And the time, we don't know. It's just like an all day thing. So <laughs> not sure there. Um, but at some point during the day, uh, it'll be lifting off from one chunk. So I guess that's as much as we can say because you're not, yep. probably not going to see much else. So just keep an eye on Twitter. Not going to get a live stream one way or the other. Okay. And then we have for our final launch this week, uh, a Cygnus CRS-2. That's NG-18, uh, aka SS Sally Ride. Um, this is the 18th Orbital ATK uh, Cygnus resupply. It's very cool. It's it's totally unnotable, right? Because it's it's just a cargo run. But they named it SS Sally Ride, and I I dig that. Um, I don't know who doesn't like Sally Ride. She's awesome. Uh, so, so that's going to be flying on an Antares two thirty plus on Sunday, November sixth at ten fifty hours UTC. The coverage for that for the rendezvous of that Cygnus begins at four thirty in the morning on November eighth, and that's Eastern time. So you can watch that on NASA TV. The actual installation will happen around seven thirty. So uh three hours of a rendezvous and then 
um, you know, the actual installation or I guess like the actual docking and the hatch opening and so on and so forth, you know, that all takes quite a bit of time. But if you have a lot of free time from the very, very early hours of November 8th in the morning up until who knows when mid morning, then you can check that out on NASA TV. Yeah. And, and yeah, I did say orbital ATK it's, it's Northrop Grumman. Like NG-18 does not stand for Orbital ATK-18. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I'm I'm going to pass that one off. I, no, I'll take, I'll take responsibility. I read Orbital ATK on a source and my brain did not filter it fast enough. <laughs> All right. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events and last minute correction burn. All right. And with that, let's deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Mike, Colin, Uncle Willie, Chris, a.k.a. Sty Garfield, Deathkin, Leon Running Man, Ryan Rigner, Kenton, VT, Calvin Stew, and Vax Hedrum for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly, even at the very last second. Thank you, Emory. And if you want to support the show as well please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources for more information on this episode such as show notes and other links visit our website at the orbitalmechanics.com be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies and you can talk about the show with other listeners on twitter and reddit we're orbital podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at the orbitalmechanics.com so that's it we will see you all next week on orbit until then later goodbye everybody